excited to uh, introduce and learn from Rabbi, Dr. Rabbi Or Rose tonight, uh, who is a writer and social activist. She's the founding director of the Center for Global Judaism at Hebrew College, which provides educational programming and resources on issues of contemporary Jewish spirituality, Israel diaspora relations, religious pluralism, and environmental responsibility. In addition to his duties at the center, uh, Or Rose serves as co-director of the Center for Interreligious and Community Leadership Education, a joint venture of Hebrew College and Andover Newton Theological School. Prior to his role at the Center for Global Judaism, Or was an associate dean and director of informal education at the rabbinical school, where he still teaches. He's the co-editor of Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life, Classical Text, Contemporary Reflections, come on in, and My Neighbor's Faith, Stories of Interreligious Encounter, Growth, and Transformation. Uh, I think one of the things that's really delightful about Rabbi Rose is not only his investment in interfaith relations, um, his social justice work, his work at Hebrew College to really be deeply involved in founding and building the organizational capacity of a non-denominational pluralistic Judaism, but also his very significant scholarship in theology, spirituality, and in particular in Hasidut, which is one of the issues we're going to, uh, to learn tonight. So I hope everyone has a learning packet. If you don't, please raise your hand when I come in with a stack, and I'll make sure that you have one as well. With that, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Orlitz. Eric Tobe, good evening. It's a pleasure to be with all of you, and I want to give a special thanks to Shmuley for his hospitality and uh, wish him all the best with his newly expanded family. Yeah. Tov and Batzlacha. So I want to move from song to story. The following is a well known story about the Rebbe, the master from Berdichev. It was Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, which is considered traditionally to be the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, the day on which we mark the destruction of the two temples in Jerusalem and several other calamities that have befallen the Jewish people throughout its history. And Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, the rabbi of this large city, is walking through its fair streets, and lo and behold, on the side of the road, he sees a man <coughs> who, in my version of the story, is eating a big corned beef sandwich. <laughs> so, Berdichev meets the Lower East Side. And the Rebbe is somewhat taken aback, because on this, the saddest day of the year, it is customary to fast. And here is this man that he knows is a part of the community chomping down marble rye, <laughs> pickle in hand, cream soda. So he approaches the man and he says the following. Surely it must be that you forgot that today is the ninth of Av and that's why you're sitting and eating. And the man says, no, I know exactly what day it is. Takes a bite. And then the Rebbe asks a second question in the same tone. Surely it must be that you were so sick that you were going to just keel over 
And so you needed to eat in order to protect your health. Because after all, one of the foundational concepts of Jewish life is the chaybahim, that you should live by the law and not die. And so if you're in grave jeopardy, you have to eat. The man turns to the Rebbe without flinching and says, I'm as healthy as a horse, and takes another bite. And this line of questioning continues for several more minutes until the Rebbe has no other thoughts, ideas, questions. And so he turns heavenward, and he says, Master of the universe, do you see how wonderful your children are? Even when they sin, they can't lie. <laughs> that is one of many stories told about Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, who was born in 1740 and died in 1809. In most of the stories that are told about him, first orally and then in written form, he's remembered, yes, as a great scholar, yes, as a great communal organizer, but above all else, he's remembered as a person of deep compassion, a person that loved in an overflowing way. So much so, as in our story, that he was one who moved into this kind of protective parental role. And in stories like this, we also see that he emerges as what is called in Hebrew, a melitz yosher, a person who was a great defender of the people of Israel. And so among the most famous stories about his defense of the Jewish people are versions of a story that are told about his behavior either on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. And in the context of this story, he stands before the Holy Blessed One and calls out and says something like, today is Yom Hadin, today is the day of judgment. And you think that we are on trial, but I am here representing this beautiful but pained community to say, you are on trial. And given all of the pain and suffering that we both are experiencing, I think we can resolve to move on. There are different versions of that story. But over and over again throughout the legends that are told about this master, it is about his defense in loving protection of his community. And so I wanted to explore with you some of the relevant teachings on this theme of compassion in Levi Yitzchak's major homiletical work. These are texts that he originally gave as sermons, as drashot, or drushes, with the proper Eastern European <laughs> accent that he gave on Shabbat and on Chagim, on Shabbat and holidays. 
And I want to work through the particulars of the texts and explore with you what are the lessons that this master sought to teach through these homilies, and then ask the related, but not necessarily the same <coughs> question, about what we are learning now from these sources and how they might be of help to us in our own ongoing quest as spiritual, ethical beings. Let me just say a few prefatory words about Hasidism to provide you with a context beyond just the stories that I've told. As some of you may know, Hasidism is, in essence, a spiritual revival movement. It begins with the figure of the Baal Shem Tov Yisrael, the son of Eliezer, known as the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name, who lived between 1700 and 1760. And as a charismatic spiritual teacher and healer, he does not set out to create a movement. But he's a part of a small network of mystically oriented teachers, preachers, healers, that begin together to create the beginnings of what will become one of the great religious social movements in Jewish history. So following the death of the Baal Shem Tov, within a matter of 50 years or so in Europe, almost half of the Jews in that Yiddish-speaking part of the world, so we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Jews, consider themselves to be Hasidim. They consider themselves to be in and part of the communities led by the disciples and the disciples of the disciples of the Baal Shem Tov. And there's a distinct spiritual vision that is taking shape. Levi Yitzchak is a student of the third generation of Hasidism. That is, if the Baal Shem Tov is in the first generation, and he's succeeded by people like the Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Dovber, the Magid of Mezrich, then Levi Yitzchak is of the third generation. Levi Yitzchak becomes a close disciple of the Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Dovber, who dies in 1772. And the disciples of the Magid of Mezrich set out to create a movement. They go out to win over the hearts and minds of the Jewish folk to the teachings of their master and of his master. And at the risk of overgeneralizing or essentializing, what is the basic message of Hasidism? It is that the world is suffused with divinity that if you become spiritually aware, you can taste and touch and feel the presence of God in all of life. And so, whether it is through story or song or dance or study or eating food or engaging in conversation, there are opportunities in Hasidic parlance to discover or uncover sparks of divinity that are always present, but we need to adjust or refine our vision in order to catch a glimpse of the beauty that 
lies in wait. I was speaking with Shmuley earlier in an interview that he did, and I said, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a great modern theologian and activist, was the descendant of generations of Hasidic rebellion. And he was once asked, why do you think the Baal Shem Tov is remembered as a legendary figure? Why him and not other figures? And his answer, I think, is quite powerful in the context of what I just said. Heschel responded by saying, while many people talked about God, the Baal Shem Tov brought God to the people. And the message was one that resonated deeply, including with many people who did not have ready access to the great textual, intellectual sources of Judaism. Because if you take the message of the Baal Shem Tov seriously, you can discover God's presence in the midst of working as a tailor, or a shoemaker, or a water carrier, and yes, as a Torah scholar. Although the Hasidic masters, many of whom were themselves intellectuals, reminded us and their opponents that in those traditional contexts of religious behavior, you might actually be most susceptible to hubris, arrogance, and the other negative qualities that shut out the possibility of discovering God. So what they were trying to do was create a sense of spiritual revival and inviting people across the social strata to join them in this quest. Interestingly, and this is important to our discussion, in some ways Hasidism can be described as democratizing spirituality. Because it's not only for the intellectuals, it's also for the masses. And in fact, some of the opponents of Hasidism were quite critical of the early masters because they felt like they were disclosing some of the great teachings, the great esoteric teachings from the past to too many people, too easily, who were not properly prepared. On the other hand, however, the Hasidic masters also insisted that every Hasid needed a Rebbe, which is to say that every community oriented around a person of particular talent, skill, and sensitivity who was believed in many cases to be an intercessor, a person that could bring together heaven and earth in ways that regular people could not. So on the one hand, God's glory fills the whole earth, they insisted, right? Quoting from our sacred texts. And on the other hand, they would say the spiritual journey is complicated and therefore you need to be a part of a community and you need to be attached to a Rebbe who can take you places that you can't go alone. And we're going to see throughout the 
course of this evening some of that tension because several of the texts that we're looking at deal specifically with leadership. And as you might imagine, Levi Yitzchak, as a member of this spiritual vanguard, oftentimes in his writings or sermons that were then committed to writing, is interested in asking, what does it mean to be a religious leader in his day and place? And he does that by inquiring into the models of leadership from the past and asking, what did Abraham or Moses do in this situation or that? And how would we understand what they did? And what does it disclose in terms of their relationship to God, to the people in their communities, and what might it teach us about our work today? So I could go on for much longer with a more historical introduction. Um, that's one of the dangers of my training. But I want to try and make this um, textually rich and also invite you into conversation. So I'm going to ask that we start reading the first text. And the more voices, the better. And I hope that the microphone can pick it up. But I think it will make for a more interesting evening rather than just listening to me talk and talk and read and talk and talk. So uh, who is willing to read the first text? Okay. Kedushat Levi Pinchas. Moses spoke to God, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the community who will go out before them, who will take them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's community may not be like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, so like many of the texts that we're going to look at this evening, the starting point is a particular biblical passage. Likely, that was the Torah portion that Levi Yitzchak was looking at that week in preparation for Shabbat or for a holiday. And this captured his attention. So first the quotation, and then his reflection on it. Continue, please. The verse instructs us to judge the people of Israel favorably, even if they are unable to do the will of the Creator at all times, as angels do. This is so only because they are so gripped by trying to make a living. Okay, go on. That is why Abraham, our father, a man of mercy, gave food to the angels who came to visit him, though he knew that angels do not eat. He did so in order to teach them about human needs, in order that they not judge Israel harshly. And this is why Moses said, The Lord, the God of the Spirit of all flesh, because man is flesh and blood, he must labor for his livelihood, and therefore there are times when he does not serve God steadily. This is why Moses said, The Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, just as you are the God of the spirits of all flesh, and you judge them, Israel, favorably, so shall you appoint a man over, the, over a congregation, a leader of Israel that will also speak favorably of them. So what is he saying? 
see some heads nodding. I hear a few hmms <coughs> around the table. Sir. Wasn't he describing himself? Perhaps. No, he was already the leader. This is not, you know, this is not uh, the beginning of the story. Right. So is he describing himself? It might be that he is, or he's describing the leader that he seeks to be. He was already appointed. God told him he had no choice. Right, but this is this is an interesting moment in the in the Torah, in that this is at the end of Moses' journey. And Joshua is going to be appointed as the next leader. And I think part of what Levi Yitzchak is trying to imagine is a reflective Moses who has been through a lot with a people that could certainly be described as stiff-necked. And here is Moses towards the end of his leadership journey. And he calls out to God and says, God, you are, after all, the spirit of all flesh. And you demonstrate compassion, specifically in this case, as it relates to our fleshly needs. So please, as my successor, appoint a person that is going to understand <laughs> that we are not angelic. We wish we were in some instances, but that is not how you created us. And since you are the spirit of all flesh, another human being who will come to the fore as the leader of the community of Israel <coughs> should certainly be understanding since he is also Basar Vadam, is also a person of flesh. Except Moshe Rabbeinu knows by this point that leaders can certainly be impatient, can certainly be disappointed, can certainly be judgmental. Just think about all the episodes of the triumphs and travails of the Israelites as they're moving through the desert. So this is a reflective Moses near the end of his years in service to the community as a leader. Yes? Didn't Pinchas judge the people harshly in the same yes. parsha? Very good. So at the beginning of the Torah portion, right, Pinchas the zealot acts very violently in what appears to be a moment of spontaneous vigilantism. And I don't know in this moment in Levi Yitzchak's life and career what he may have been thinking about the figure of Pinchas at the beginning of the Torah portion and with this instruction coming at the end of the Torah portion. But like you, I do raise an eyebrow knowing the proximity of those two stories. Um, he does have a few comments on Pinchas, not many, and usually they are <coughs> laudatory, um, but this strikes a very different tone. So thank you for raising that. Anything else that strikes you about this first text? An image, a phrase, 
something that evokes a question? Uh, when I first heard it, I thought he was blaming the, uh, the Yitzchak was talking about himself. Right. I think which is perhaps also part of what the first comment um, was about. Um, yes, this comes very close to the stories that I began the evening with. One thing I want to point out here, and I, I said it, but I said it in a in an elusive way, is that in many of the stories told about Levi Yitzchak, he's quite aggressive in calling out against what he considers to be the injustice that has been visited upon the people of Israel. Here, right, it isn't it isn't a complaint. It isn't a moment of protest. I think it's a moment of how would you describe it? It's like a request for mercy from Beckham so easy. Right. It's a plea, I think might be one way of saying it. But it doesn't have the same sharp edge as some of the stories. And one of the things that I have actually noted reading and rereading many of the sermons in this book is that I have not yet come upon a text that he wrote or that was written based on the sermons that he gave that are nearly as sharp as the tales. I think is interesting because clearly he's plea he's pleading here. There is a text similar to this um, on the very same page in the in the standard printed edition, in which he does say more explicitly, "Master of the universe, you created us as flesh and blood, so please remember that we aren't angelic." But it isn't the same kind of fist pounding drama from the story. So part of what interests me is how did that translation take place? And again, I wasn't there. And I don't have any clear records. <coughs> but it's interesting that in the popular imagination, um, it takes on a more dramatic, more adversarial tone. Um, th there's an interesting conversation to have about the embracing of dualism as opposed to monism here, and the, the, the separation of mind and body um, that's embraced right. in, the, in this Hasidic text. But in some ways, it's a con contrast to Christianity that God doesn't, uh, no, the messenger of God doesn't understand the flesh, right? Whereas in Christianity, the messenger of God is in flesh. Here, the angels don't understand. <coughs> they can't grasp the experience of flesh, in a sense. Right. Um, just one other point is that there's also, it may be implicit, that the tradition or halakha is broken, in a sense. The people can't do this anymore. We need mercy because there's, something's gone awry in the, in, the, in the connection to the past, that I now need to defend the people because it's not working. Right. So <coughs> let me address the first and then the second. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating trope, which is um, God is the creator of all life. Here, Levi Yitzchak pleads with God to remember as the animating spirit, who in some ways might be least, un least understanding of the fleshly experience of people, to put in place a person 
who has some of the same Rachmanut as God, right? So there's a, there's a praise of God here that is, you, the spirit of all flesh, do understand. Although it becomes complicated because we have the angelic realm. And this is an ongoing conversation, I think, as you know, across generations, where in rabbinic storytelling, angels play a very interesting role. And there's a rivalry oftentimes between angels and human beings. So, you know, the, the, an, the angelic presence in the story is fascinating because, as you say, they, they don't seem necessarily to understand. There's, there's a beautiful, humorous moment. Why did Abraham feed angels? If Abraham, right, ha had this great kind of visionary power and he understood that these weren't simply men, you know, why would he serve them food? Now, the kashrut of that meal is another question also. <laughs> but why would he serve them? And it becomes a beautiful, a beautiful reflection on compassion, that the human being has something to teach the angel. So you might say that the hierarchy of you know, the spirit and the fleshly is somewhat confused because the angels don't understand it. Oftentimes, as you, as you know, in those older rabbinic stories too, the angels are capable of one thing and one thing only. And part of what God seems to delight in is the fact that human beings are complicated. And, right, this is another example. We, we are spirit and flesh. Um, and we might describe that relationship, you know, body and spirit differently today, but what he's trying to do Right, and for whom he is doing, and I'm not certain either. Who are the audiences that he has in mind? Is it himself, you know, reminding the rabbi of the community that he has to be patient and caring, you know, as he pastors? Is it other people in the community? You know, what might have been said judgmentally that week, right, by Shlomo or Yankel? Uh, we don't know. Uh, in terms of you know what the statement says about about the halachic system, I think there's a more complicated question that has to be contextualized within a broader range of texts. My my general answer is that for Levi Yitzchak, like for his forebears and his peers, the assumption was that people were living squarely within the realm of halacha, and that. It was his responsibility, along with those of his peers, to try and help people understand the halachic system as a series of gifts. That's often how he describes it. Opportunities for connection. So I don't know that he would say it's broken, but it's an intriguing question to ask. What does it mean that they're not serving as they should be serving? And what does that say about the theological field of, of the conversation uh, more broadly. Remember, by the way, he was also um, the Rav of his community. Unusually, uh, in the history of, of Hasidism, he's both the Rebbe and the Rav. And um, he was considered to be a halachic authority. But um, I want to I wanna just keep that question um, with us as we as we continue, I saw a couple of other hands. Yeah. So we're <coughs> we're near the end of um, 
well, we're still in the desert right now. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so Moses is remembering, uh, you know, before the desert, um, you know, we had to make a living, right? It was difficult. Things were harsh. Right. And when we enter the promised land, it's going to be the same way. But now our shoes don't wear out. <laughs> we don't have to work for food. We get it from heaven. If we're thirsty, right. we touch a rock. Yeah. You know, so he's... He's looking, he's remembering the past and looking forward to what's going to come right. because they're not living this issue right now. Right. Interestingly, again, within the context of, of the larger collection of sermons, sometimes Levi Yitzchak will say, and you hear this in other rabbinic commentaries, that it is a greater spiritual challenge uh, to live in the land of Israel and to live in successive generations beyond the wilderness generation because not everything is provided anymore. Um, so there's, you know, there's an interesting set of conversations that go back and forth. Was the wilderness generation the greatest of generations? Right? Or were they in some sense a generation that was just at the very beginning of their spiritual maturation process? Because if manna comes down from heaven and God reveals God's self in all kinds of spectacular ways. From my perspective, it might not be so difficult to be a believer. <laughs> but, right, you might say the grass is greener or the sand is <laughs> fill in the blank. But you set me up perfectly for the next text. So I'm going to ask you to hold your comment. But um, read the next text because it touches on this ex exact point about... Um, the growth process of the Jewish people as Lady Yitzchak imagines it. Would someone be willing to read another voice? Thank you. And the Lord said, spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Go on. Rashi and Rambam are divided as to the sin of Moses. One says it is that of saying, Listen, O you rebels. And the other defines it as striking the rock. Okay. So let me just fill in a few basic details. Right? This is considered Moses' moment of great downfall. Right? This very painful episode where he's instructed in the verses we just read to speak to the rock. And he hits the rock. And so generation after generation, commentators have asked, what happened? And in this case, Nachmanides, the Ramban, and Rashi before him differ in their understanding of what went wrong, what was sinful. How did Moses and Aaron transgress in this moment? And what they introduce into the conversation, which is sometimes overlooked, and you'll see this becomes the centerpiece for Levi Yitzchak, is the way in which Moses spoke to the people. Right? Listen, you rebels. You want me to bring forth water for you? Oh, I'll bring water forth for you. Right? So that's part of what he wants to highlight. And I think he, he, he does that uh, in a beautiful way. So let's read on. But they are 
They really are the same, for one led to the other. He also loves to try and harmonize disparate voices from the past. You know, it's part of the art form. You think so-and-so is saying A, and the other is saying B. Now let me tell you through a kind of creative exegetical performance, you know, how we can harmonize, and in harmonizing, bring forth something that's new and significant for us. Okay? So they're really one and the same, or one led to the other. Go on. There are two sorts of preachers who address Israel to move them to do the Creator's will. One speaks to them in a positive manner, telling each person what a high rung is his, how the souls of Israel are truly hewn from beneath the throne of glory. He reminds them of the Creator's <coughs> great pleasure in a mitzvah performed by any Jew, how all the world are joyous at seeing God's command fulfilled. This kind of preaching inclines the heart to do God's bidding and to accept the yoke of God's kingdom. But other preachers reprove Israel with harsh language, shaming them until they are forced to do God's will. Okay, pause there. Right? There are different ways to get people to do what you want. Right? And he likes to create these polarities you know, or these models. So one strategy is you just shame people. You tell them how lowly they are or how lowly their behavior is uh, until they submit. And that's one way, but there is another way. And the other way is to say, do you remember who you are? Do you know your place of origin? Right, Just beneath right, that throne of glory? Do you know that you are a ben or a bat melech? Right, to use a traditional rabbinic expression, right? You are a child of the kingdom. Do you know that every mitzvah that you perform creates joy throughout the cosmos? There is a kind of reverberation in your good deeds that is felt not only on this plane of existence, but throughout the rungs of the cosmos that are a part of this universe. So those are the two choices. And now he applies it back to Moses and Aaron. When Moses said, listen, O you rebels, he was reproving Israel with harsh words. That was why he had to strike the rock in order to force it to fulfill its created purpose. Had he uplifted Israel as the Blessed Holy One intended by saying, speak to the rock, he would have been saying, you, O rock, you were created for the sake of Israel. They are on such a high rung that you have to do that for which you were created, to bring forth water for Israel. But now that he had reproved Israel harshly, he needed to strike the rock. I love this moment in the text, um, similar to the way that he plays with the angels and Abraham. Because I think he, he brings that element of the story to life. So Moses rebukes the people very harshly. By the way, rebuke in our tradition is, can be a very important part of what it means to be right, a leader. But he rebukes them harshly. His tochacha right, comes in the form of a 
biting critique. Oh, listen, you rebels. And in response to that language, the rock, which is now personified, clenches. <laughs> and it won't yield its water easily. It's become fearful. What do you do when you become fearful? You tighten. So it sees the interaction between Moses and the children of Israel, and then right, it girds itself, if you will, and then Moses has to whack at it. <laughs> and then the water gushes forth. But he could have said to the rock, had he had the appropriate wherewithal and consciousness, just like the Israelites, just like these people, are all creations in the divine image, you beautiful rock, this is your destiny. This is your moment. Thank you for being here. Right? But once the rock hears that that's not how the conversation is unfolding, right? it, it, it ducks for cover without arms that's or legs. Nice. It gets <laughs> petrified, exactly. <laughs> but it Beautiful. also could have not given any water. Right. And the story could have gone that way, too. Right. But you might say, you know, analogously, it's beaten into submission mm. in the same way that he did that verbally with the people. And then the water, you know, gushes forth. And then what does God say? Right? Here's the end of the story. And I think it's a very interesting very perceptive reading. Because you did not have faith in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. So that's the quotation a few verses later when God says to Moses, you've sinned. And then we know the consequence, of course, is that he's not going to enter the land of Canaan. But that's the quotation. So how does Levi Yitzchak now read it? The one who approaches Israel through goodness can pass this understanding on to them sanctifying me in the eyes, our sages, Song of Songs. Rabbah, it's a collection of commentary on the Song of Songs, say. Say that eyes refers to the wise within the community. They, the community, too, would be able to attain this understanding. Okay, so take note here. Because you did not have faith in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. The eyes is what he is focusing on. The one who approaches Israel through goodness can pass this understanding on to them. So there's, a, there's an interesting confusion or conflation of senses. So he speaks to them, but he speaks to them harshly. And so they can't actually hear or understand who they truly are. To use the visual metaphor that he's using, <coughs> right? if the leaders of a community are referred to by the rabbis as the eyes of a community, which is a powerful statement, then their task is to share that vision with other people, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, which is to say, to help them see themselves as being created in the divine image. To share your insight with them so that they see themselves as being beautiful. But he fails to do that in the eyes of the people, right? He's reading that very carefully. Le'enei ha'eda. Because your task 
as a leader is to show the people who they really are. And if you scream and yell at them, if you demean them, if you degrade them, then you can't possibly transmit that understanding of who they are in their deepest or higher selves. So if you are the eyes of the community, one way to think about leadership, he's saying, is how do you help other people see themselves in their gadlut, to use another Hasidic expression, in their expansiveness? Because oftentimes the Hasidic masters say part of what stifles us spiritually and ethically is that we function through a kind of small-mindedness. We are, we are in a place of restricted consciousness, katnut. So how do you help people enlarge their vision? That's what he's calling for here. How do you say to someone, and you can't, of course, do it for them, right? Even the most powerful tzaddik or rebbe, with all of his mystical and magical powers, right, can't do it for us. But how do you help people see themselves differently? Is, I think, the question here. Sir? In this statement, could you also be referring to the animosity between the Mitnagdim and the Hasidim? Yes. Where the Hasidim would be, you know, you could reach God through song and dance and anything, you know, any way, whereas the Mitnagdim would be the, you know, very structured, very, you know, has to be followed strictly, philosophically. Yes. That's the only way of reaching God. Yes. So you you can read any of these sources I'm suggesting um, on different levels simultaneously. So you could read this as a critique of his fellow Hasidic Rebbes. I don't know who he has in mind. It could be a critique of his opponents, the, the Misnagdim. Um, but I also <coughs> would want to ask the question, is this a self-reflection about a moment in his own leadership journey? where, you know, the umpteenth person has come to him that day for help with something, and it seems like it's beneath him. And so he loses it, like we all do. So those are two texts. One, you might say, is a reflective moment where Moses, in his own gadlut, right, in his expand expansiveness, nearing the end of his journey, says, God, please, I've learned along the way. Appoint a person that's going to be sensitive to the challenges along the spiritual journey. In the second case, it's one of Moses' moments of failure. And Lady Yitzchak, by the way, interestingly, is not shy about pointing out the moments in Moses' life where he thinks that he has not risen to the occasion. And this is a, a simpler one because, you know, there's broad consensus <laughs> that, that he failed here. But there are other moments where he says, you know, as great as Moses was, there's a mistake that was made here. Or God is trying to teach Moses something that we too need to learn. So I want to take us back to Sinai, if you'll come with me. So many beautiful mountains around here. <laughs> because um, I want to try and share with you another related point that goes back to an earlier question and is 
Also, I think a subtlety in terms of understanding Levi Yitzchak's spiritual vision as it relates to the, the broad conversation about compassion, about chesed or rachmanut. By the way, the movement is called chasidut. And usually we think about it as piety. But sometimes I like to say Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, among others, you know, put the chesed into chasidut. Chesed in the simple sense of loving kindness and mercy. But that's a part of his spiritual vision, not only as a rabbi relates to his community, but it's also how he sees God in relationship to the community of Israel. And you'll, you'll see that play out in an interesting way in the next text. Another voice, maybe from the back of the room. Sir, and then you get the next one. Okay. I am the Lord your God. Let us explain this verse in light of the following rabbinic teaching. The sea of reeds, he, he appeared to them as a youth. At Mount Sinai, he appeared to them as an elder. Okay, so that piece from Pesikta Rabati is already enough for us to contemplate for a long time. We don't need any more fanciful, mystical commentary, but we're going to go there. <laughs> right? Itself is a fascinating midrash. What does it mean that God appears to the children of Israel in one great moment in the liberation story as a young man and in a second great story later in the narrative as an older man. What does this say about Israel? What does this say about God? Well, Levi Yitzhak's going to have something to say about it momentarily. So, if you would. The Blessed One, the Blessed Holy One, veils himself in the worlds. However, at the Sea of Reeds, where there was no change in nature, he was not garbed in the worlds. The children of Israel saw the divine unclothed. At Mount Sinai, however, the Holy Blessed One dressed himself such that the worlds could maintain their existence. Okay, I'm going to pause, because already there are some symbolic terms here that require unpacking. So remember, of course, also where we are, Sinai. Right, the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. And then the question, right, which follows is, but what kind of God are you in which moments? At the Sea of Reeds and at Sinai. So Levi Yitzchak then takes a step back and he gives us the klal, the general principle, which is the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy Blessed One, veils himself in the worlds. The term that he uses in Hebrew is mitzamtzim, from an older mystical term, tzimtzum, which means to contract or to limit. And it's a part of the myth of Isaac Luria that you may have heard about in terms of tikkun olam. That is to say that when God goes to create in the story of origins, according to Luria, the 16th century master, there is a moment in which God contracts God's self. Because before time, in a place before space, all there is is God. So for God to introduce the possibility of a creative process in which there is some notion of other, God has to limit God's self. And that is called tzimtzum. God's contraction, God's self-contraction. 
And then what follows is that God pours forth God's light. And as the story goes, the vessels that God has fashioned to hold the light can't hold them. And there's a breakage, which is the story of tikkun in a mystical key. The term was used long before it, but the story of tikkun in a mystical key is that shards of those original pieces of pottery and the brilliant light that they couldn't withstand are intermingled. And so we live in a world that is an admixture of light and darkness. And our task is to try and uncover as much of that light and bring the world into a place of enlightened alignment, you might say. The Hasidic masters, especially Levi Yitzchak's teacher, the Magid of Mezrich, do not interpret Tzintzum in a way that God is ever absent. The way that they actually interpret that term Tzintzum is that God is veiled. God is always present, but God's presence might be subtle. Because, as he says here, the regular workings of the world are such that God is veiled or garbed. They like the language of garbing or clothing. God is veiled. God is not absent, but not every day is the Sea of Reeds, you may have noticed. So at the Sea of Reeds, though, according to this interpretation, God unveils God's power, God's supernatural power, in an unusual way. So much so that another rabbinic expression, which is actually included in this commentary, but I shortened it, says, at the Sea of Reeds, the maidservant had a vision of God that was more brilliant than that which Ezekiel saw, right, by the waters of Babylon, that great vision of the chariot. So the maidservant, which in this hierarchical, patriarchal culture, right, is, is come to represent, right, the average person, you know, amongst the lower caste, that person saw a vision of God of the sea that's greater than one of the great prophets. And the language here also has, you know, some eroticism, that God is naked before the people. But Levi Yitzchak actually doesn't pick up on that, but he goes elsewhere. So that's the experience of the Sea of Reeds. But what about Sinai? At Sinai, God was, was clothed. So it's a different kind of theophany or revelation. And then he makes reference to Luria. I forget who was reading. Sir, if you pick up, in the writings of Isaac Luria. In the writings of Rabbi Isaac Luria, of blessed memory, clothing is associated with the symbol of hair. That is why at the Sea of Reeds, God appeared to them as a young man without facial hair, without any worldly garb. When giving the Torah, God was revealed to them as an elder with hair dressed in this worldly form. So the reason I included the Hebrew there is just to indicate that there's a play of words. Right? A zaken is an elder, and a zakan is a beard. So, going back to the image from the rabbinic midrash, at the Sea of Reeds, God appears as a young man. 
You know, I, I imagine that the vision is of a kind of Herculean, muscular figure, right? And this brawny god splits the sea and drowns the enemy and leads the people to freedom. But the god at Sinai is not that young, brawny, Herculean figure. The god at Sinai is more of a wizened elder. So the, that god you know, does not have hulking muscles, but that god is clothed, garbed, and that god has a long white beard. Right? He has a zakan. Um, it's an interesting contrast. Because if you telegraph just a little bit, the theophany of the sea, you might say, is the greater of the two revelations. Because it's in that moment where God reveals God's self supernaturally and overturns the natural order. But of those two revelations, in terms of the shaping of Jewish history, Matan Torah, the revelation at Sinai, is clearly the quote-unquote greater of the two. But it's the greater of the two in a specific way. Not in terms of God's sheer force or power or the brilliance of that revelation. It becomes significant. It becomes transformative in a different way. Read on. At Sinai. At Sinai, God had to be covered in garments so that the children of Israel would understand the Torah. That is why it is written in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy, You appeared to them in the cloud of your glory. That is, by limiting and clothing his great light. The, litur <coughs> the liturgist then explains why this darkness was necessary by saying, Upon your holy people to speak to them. Meaning that God spoke to them from within a cloud so that they could understand his holy words. So what's the message? What's the point of Sinai? Understanding. Comprehension. So understanding and comprehension seem to be the goals of Sinai. What does that have to do with the imagery that he's using? At the Sea of Reeds, right, God is this great kind of muscular, heroic figure. And the children of Israel, really in that case, are much more passive. They're wowed by this experience. They sing in jubilation. <coughs> but they don't need to take hold of that experience and fashion a culture and a future around it in the same way that they do with Sinai. Because if the goal is ultimately that the children of Israel take hold of the Torah and make it right the center of their evolving culture, then all of the fireworks of the sea are not particularly helpful if what God is going to do is simply overwhelm the people. Right? Been there done that, <laughs> now you and I are growing, and we're moving into a different stage of relationship. And for you to come of age in the ways that I hope and pray you will, 
I can't simply just, you know, throw lightning bolts. But what I need to do is actually engage in some act of self-limitation so that you have increased agency. Which is why the image of God at Sinai as an elder, as a wise elder, who is more of a teacher, right, and not a warrior, becomes powerful for Levi Yitzchak. So the Rosh Hashanah liturgy then becomes a wonderful proof text. Because what is needed at Sinai, he's arguing, and here I'll use a fanciful term, you brought me all the way from Boston, is an occluded revelation. Right? There has to be some measure of tzimtzum in the revelation itself. Because otherwise, with all of that force, right, the people would just be overwhelmed. And we do see, by the way, in the biblical narrative that the mountain smokes like a kiln, but never does it crumble under the weight of that cloud. Right? And for Levi Yitzchak, that becomes a very significant image. God is present, but it's in the thickness of that cloud. Because any more, right, and the mount and the people could be just completely overwhelmed by the experience. But if you want to speak, if you want to communicate, if you want to share, if you want this to be a dialogical process in which humankind is increasingly involved as mature spiritual seekers, then there has to be room for that to happen. Hands. Yes. Well, earlier you had asked, it turned out, <coughs> maybe I thought it was a rhetorical question, but you, you said, how do you help a person acting from a small vision to expand his vision? Right. And as, as a background as a teacher, I answered it saying, <laughs> you provide him a vision, yes. and, you meet, and you speak to him where he is. Right. And this is exactly what this is. It's at uh, the Sea of Reeds, provided a vision, and now speaking to him in a way that he can understand. Both. By the way, there's a there's a text in this same collection, in the same part of the shop, in which Moses is ascending the mountain, and Levi Yitzchak says, the reason why the Torah tells us that Moses is ascending and that God meets Moses at the top of Mount Sinai is because... Um, they actually are moving in different directions. Moses, the mystic, right? Moses, the visionary, wants to go as high as possibly can. He wants to go where no person has ever gone before. Right? He, and Lady Yitzchak says he wants to speak to God on a godly plane. After all, he is Moses. Right? And he's going and going and going and going. And then Moses goes to a place beyond where God wants to meet him. And so God meets him at the top of Mount Sinai. And remember, according to the Midrash, right, Sinai is a rather modest mountain. I played Sinai in my second grade <laughs> <laughs> Torah play. You know, there was the big mountain that was, you know, very arrogant. There are different kinds of mountains. In any case, right, it's a rather small mountain. And God says, it's wonderful that you want to be this mystical visionary. And you have the power to do it. But that's not what I need you for. I need you to speak, to communicate, and to learn with the people. And if you go any higher in your own quest, you're never going to be able to come down. And you're never going to be able to engage them in this process. 
So when I read that text and read this one, it seems that God here, to use your language, is modeling a certain kind of pedagogy. But it's also a certain kind of relational way of being in the world. And I want to say a couple of things more about that because for the Magid and for Levi Yitzchak, his student, this is another way of articulating a vision of God who is in partnership, who is in loving partnership with humankind. It becomes complicated, though, because if we are given increased agency and we take hold of Torah, it necessarily means that the God of the sea is going to be less and less available, which also means that there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering along the way. But this becomes a hallmark of this rabbi's spiritual vision. So much so that for him in some ways, the holidays of Hanukkah and Purim become the most significant models for the Jews of Eastern Europe, right? for everyone who lives after them. Why? Because in those stories, God is most hidden. So Sinai becomes a turning point. There's an interesting kind of um, theology of history that he's unfolding, which is there's a transition from the sea to Sinai, which then continues all the way to Hanukkah and Purim, where in these very subtle ways God is present, but human agency is at the forefront of those dramas. By the way, I, I don't know the reason for it, but I, I like to play with this I idea. Levi Yitzchak in his own lifetime published commentaries on Hanukkah and Purim. Those are among the earliest things that he published. The rest of the collection of sermons were published a few years after his death. But I would argue that there is something about his vision, the spiritual vision, that could be called a kind of Hanukkah Purim spirituality. There's, there is the reality of God's presence, but veiled, which makes life complicated. But for him and for the Magid, it also is what makes life meaningful. Because there has to be light and shadow. And without that, <coughs> human beings don't have the opportunity to meaningfully engage with God in this covenantal relationship. The way that I read him more broadly as a Rebbe is that every Shabbat he stands in front of his community. And can you imagine what it is like on a given Shabbat in 1794 in Eastern Europe? Who knows what has happened that week? And you're reading the Torah portions about signs and wonders? Don't you think occasionally people might ask, what about us? We read all of this, what about us? Um, so I think from a pastoral perspective, part of what he's trying to say is, we can lament the fact Right, that we don't live in the age of nisim v'niflaot as they were carried out supernaturally like in the days of Moses and the wilderness generation. 
or we can come to understand that this is actually a sign of our ennoblement. That God has entered into a kind of relationship with us that is more complex. It's more mysterious. But it means that we are more involved, clearly, in the drama of life. It's not the God of the sea. It's the God of Sinai that becomes much more significant forever after. But it comes with it comes with light and shadow. Right. I I don't know how to answer that question <coughs> or how he would have answered that question. And ultimately, I don't know that there are answers to all of the great theological questions. But what I am trying to do, and I'm inviting you to do, is to ask what leads him to this kind of spiritual vision. He's clearly a person that sees God as good. But God is a God of chesed. And he, as an intermediary, as a Rebbe, wants to walk in God's ways and be a Rebbe of chesed rachmanut. And he's dealing with people every day who are experiencing pain and suffering. So he's trying to weave for himself and for them a spiritual vision. And it has something to do with light and shadow, about presence, but the veiled presence of God, and the possibility that there is something meaningful that grows out of that. By the way, in one you know, particular play, <coughs> he links Sinai directly to Purim because he says, according to the Midrash, it's only at Purim, as you might recall, that the Jews actually fully accept the Torah. Right? Kimu v'kiblu is the phrase that, that he uses from the story of Esther. Kimu v'kiblu, they accept it and they establish it, they establish and they accept it. And he says that's a very long process to come to terms with the shifting dynamics between God and the people of Israel. Um, by the way, you can read a contemporary <coughs> post-Holocaust theology that in some ways is similar to this from Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. I saw Yitz a few months ago, and uh, he's not a student of Hasidism. He's, he has studied the Musar tradition much more in depth. But uh, I said to him, I have to show you a few texts from the Kedushat Levi, because there are ways in which it dovetails with, with your attempts to reckon with the monstrosity of, of the Shoah. It's a person who's working hard to understand why life is the way it is with a conception of a God that is good. So I, I want to do two last things. I have to excuse myself. Oh, I'm no so problem. No I'm, problem. Needed, I'm needed at home. Yeah. I just want to do two last things. And uh, here I'm going to be more explicitly critical uh, in the following way. You see repeatedly here that Levi Yitzchak is trying to articulate a vision of chesed, a kind of overflowing vision, which to him begins with God 
and suffuses all of life, and it is the mission of the Rebbe, particularly in times where God is veiled, to step into the chasm and work with and on behalf of the Jewish people. It's part of the reason why I think he believes the institution of the Rebbe is so important. Um, but in that conversation, oftentimes he expresses very negative sentiments about non-Jews. And I'm sure it has everything to do with his lived experience. But one of the questions, among the theological questions that we're asking, also has to be an ethical question about what we do with that part of the legacy. Because you can tell, you know, for the last hour or so, you know, I've, I've been schwitzing excitedly, <laughs> sharing with you what I consider to be some of the beauties of this teaching. But you can find teachings, and I chose not to include them in this packet, but I could, um, where he says you know, very harsh things about um, non-Jews and that he sees the world as being dichotomized. Um, so what do we do with it? Um, one thing that I think we cannot do, certainly, is ignore it. Because um, that would be intellectually and spiritually dishonest. We also can't ignore it because these teachings and these books continue to play a role in the unfolding of our Jewish community. And different people are going to read them in different ways and be inspired to think and behave differently. And the nature of life is that there are competition of ideas. So how do I, as a, as a person that sees great beauty and light in this tradition, reckon with that? And my answer, provisionally, I want to give through the reading of this last text. Because I, I dafka want to try and employ some of the strategies of Hasidism textually to answer a hard question about some of the teachings of Hasidism. Rather than trying to you know, step away from it, I want to see if there's a way to play with it creatively to answer part of that question. And there are other questions. I just want to say that. Right? Your question, sir, you know, the theological question, you know, about the Shoah or others. The question about this model of leadership. You know, I don't think it's I don't think it's readily translatable to think about our rabbis and pastors as being, you know, the kinds of mystical, magical intermediaries. Of course, those mystical, magical um, intermediaries in Hasidism are almost exclusively men, too. So there are a whole series of challenges. So I just want to you know, point out one specific to this conversation about <coughs> compassion, about chesed, because it's very hard for him, as I read these texts, to extend that same sentiment uh, to non-Jews. And I don't know what it was like to live in the Pale of Settlement. And I don't know what his lived experience was like, particularly as a leader that is trying to marshal his community um, and how he understands his commentary, his interpretation, his sermonizing as a way to try 
again, to ennoble them, to dignify them. But I do know that that's not an attitude that can stand, given the changes in our world. So here's just one text that I, I think opens a door, if you will. Someone want to read the last piece? Truma. Like all that I show you at the bottom of the page. Ilana? Like all that I show you, the structure of the tabernacle and the structure of all its vessels, and thus shall you do. Hashi comments on, and thus shall you do for all generations. But the Tosafot objects. The altar that Moshe made was not equal to that made by Solomon. Ramban raises a similar objection. So we see the same kind of play as he as he had before. We have these medieval giants, they have disagreements. How is he going to you know, introduce something new out of this debate, out of this machlokas? Okay? But following our method, we can understand, and thus shall you do, as referring to something else. Really, the structure of the tabernacle and all its vessels that had to be of a certain height, weight, and form were all ways of garbing or giving form to some holy spiritual entity. This followed the prophetic experience that Moses had on Mount Sinai, along with all of Israel. As they drew this holy force into their deeds, so it was. This is the way that the garb or vessel, along with the tabernacle itself, had to be made. Okay, just pause there. So that's the experience of Moses. Right? Moses has a particular religious experience, or set of religious experiences, that lead him to certain insights, a certain vision of divinity, and it's based on that vision that he creates the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which, by the way, again, is described as a garb or a vessel. Right? Notice that language. How do you give shape and form to an encounter with the <coughs> One of the ways is to build sanctuary. Okay, that was Moses. What comes next? Well, we also know the Talmudic statement on Hedron 89a, that no two prophets prophesy in the same style. Each does so in his own category. We follow the path of that person in worshiping God, in that every way does the spirit of prophecy appear. <coughs> this means that Moses and the generation of the wilderness, following the qualities of worship and prophecy they attained at Sinai, had to construct this particular form of tabernacle, structuring its vessels in just this way, so that they would properly garb the spiritual lights of holiness. This is what scripture means when it says, like all that I show you, according to your level of prophecy, so should the tabernacle and vessels be. Right. So if you were to reread that, if I was to rewrite it with you know different font, like all that I show you in bold. Like all that I show you specifically, Moses, or you, Solomon. Okay, go ahead. But then it adds, and thus shall you do for all generations. This means that in every generation, when you want to build the temple, the structure should be in accord with the prophecy that is then attained. That should determine the form of temple and vessels. Solomon did it according to his worship and his prophetic spirit. The form he made followed that which he attained. Thus, Ramban's objection can really be dismissed. Of course his altar was different. That was the commandment that they not do it always in one particular form, but in accord with the flow of prophecy that takes place then. That should determine the form of the 
So it's, to my heart and mind, um, a pretty radical teaching. Shmuley, go back to your original question about you know, the system, qua system. Here, right, he says, Moses experienced God in one way, Solomon in the other, and so it is in every generation. There is no sense in this text of Yuridata Dorot, right, the decline of the generations. And he says, this means that in every generation, when you want to build the temple, what does it mean that we're going to build a temple in every generation? Right? I think he's thinking metaphorically. So in every generation, we are commanded to follow to the best of our abilities our understanding of what God calls us to do and to be. And it's based on that vision that we have to create institutions of all kinds. Ethical codes, right, included in that sentiment. Um, so that's a part of an answer to the question that I raised before, which is to say, part of what I find exciting about Hasidism is that there's a certain kind of emphasis on the spirituality of the present. That, yes, there is so much to glean from the past. And you see, methodologically in this text, how he does it. He couldn't create this text and this idea without this kind of intimate engagement with the Torah and all of the commentaries. But then the point is, out of the building blocks of that kind of exercise, right, you come to understand that you have a relationship with God. Now, again, would he say that each and every one of us has an equal say in how Judaism should be articulated and lived in the, in the world that he resided in? No. Would he regard all of us as equal tzaddikim with the same kinds of power? No. But I'm saying, <laughs> with my limited power, that I think there is something important to be learned here. And yes, I realize that I'm reading out of the context in which he lived and wrote, but I also am trying to engage him seriously and with something of the same respect that I think he shows past generations, including Nachmanides, who he says can be dismissed in this case. I mean, not until you read right, and evaluate that carefully. So I don't think we should look back to these teachings or to this teacher um, without a sense of um, critical responsibility in our reading and interpreting. And I, I want to say in closing that um, you know I've been I've been journeying with this Rebbe um, for more than a decade now, not only because I'm schlepping along in my <laughs> dissertation, um, but because I'm really drawn to his vision of of um, of chesed, of compassion, particularly as a person that's struggling every day to try and be a menschlich, thoughtful, and effective leader in the Jewish community and the world at large. So it's a tremendous honor for me to be able to share some of the teachings that I love with other people. And um, again, 
you know, as I'm reading, I'm trying to do so with deep and abiding respect. I would say love <laughs> uh, for all that I've learned and to ask some of the difficult questions in ways I think across these uh, generations that this Rebbe and others you know, call me to do. So uh, it's 8.30. Um, this may be the first time I've ever ended on time. <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to have uh, informal conversation. Um, but again, I, I do want to thank um, Shmuley, uh, particularly since your family is growing in our midst, uh, that you had the wherewithal to, to be such a gracious host um, and to give me this opportunity to share some, some, some of my thoughts with all of you. This is one of those sessions where I feel there's layer upon layer of depth to continue thinking about. I hope you'll have coffee tomorrow with someone in the room to continue to unpack some of this, um, or we'll be here for a little bit longer if you want to chat with him. It's a sign to his, um, his own Madalut that there are six rabbis in the room who are aware that, uh, or is, is one of the few people, uh, maybe that's not charitable, uh, a large few um, who are part of reinvigorating Jewish thought today in 21st century uh, Jewish life. So um, I want to thank again Rabbi Linder and Temple Solak for being wonderful, wonderful partners and hosts. Um, everyone for joining us, uh, and Rabbi Orrose from co for coming all the way from Boston to, uh, to teach us tonight. So you can try to be here rather than in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. I'm going to bring some sunshine back with me. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great night, everyone. Thank you.